It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this week's podcast, we're focusing on the protests and violence in the United States that have followed the killing of George Floyd, an African-American man choked to death by a policeman. These extraordinary events have happened in a presidential election year, and I'll be asking what impact they're likely to have on the contest between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. My guest is Dr. Omar Wasso of Princeton University, whose work focuses on race and politics in the United States. So do protests really change politics and society? The killing of George Floyd is, of course, not the first time that racial violence has triggered social unrest across the United States. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, 39 years old and a Nobel Peace Prize winner, and the leader of the nonviolent civil rights movement in the United States, was assassinated in Memphis tonight. In April 1968, Martin Luther King, the most prominent leader of the American civil rights movement, was assassinated. In the days that followed, there were protests and riots across America. One of the candidates in the presidential elections that year was Richard Nixon, who based his campaign on restoring law and order. It is time for an honest look at the problem of order in the United States. Dissent is a necessary ingredient of change. But in a system of government that provides for peaceful change, there is no cause that justifies resort to violence. Nixon's victory for the Republicans in the 1968 presidential election was achieved on the back of that campaign. And there might have been a direct connection between the riots that followed King's murder and Nixon's subsequent victory. Research by my guest, Dr. Wasso, has shown that in 1968, counties that bordered areas where there'd been urban violence were 6 to 8% more likely to vote for Nixon, which might have been enough to tip a close election. So could something similar happen this time around? There are two competing narratives already developing about the events that have followed the killing of George Floyd. One stresses police violence and racial injustice and has been stressed by Joe Biden. We need justice for George Floyd. We need real police reform that hold cops to a higher standard that so many of them actually meet, that holds bad cops accountable, that repairs relationship between law enforcement and the community they're sworn to protect. We need to stand up as a nation with the black community, with all minority communities, and come together as one America. That's the challenge we face. But the opposing story, favored by President Trump, is all about law and order. I want the organizers of this terror to be on notice that you will face severe criminal penalties and lengthy sentences in jail. So which of these two narratives is likely to prove more politically powerful in the run-up to November's election? That's a question I'll discuss with Omar Wasso. But I started by asking him whether the urban unrest we are currently witnessing in the United States 
is indeed the most serious since 1968. You know, I think what's helpful in thinking about that question of like, how big is this, is to kind of step back for a second and look at what did we actually see in the 1960s. And in my research, what I find is that there are a few key questions that are worth wrestling with. One is, are, do protests matter at all? And there's a lot of research that suggests, you know, kind of basically elites dominate politics and we shouldn't expect protests to matter. People go out in the street and, it, you know, who cares? And I find, uh, along with some other scholars of, of protest movements, that in fact they can be quite influential in politics and that they can be influential in politics in part, what I find in my research, is through the media. That basically a protest today predicts a headline about the protests tomorrow and what the media covers influences public opinion, and that changes politics. And the other detail that I find is that the kinds of tactics protesters employ matter for politics. And so when protesters engage in nonviolent resistance, particularly when they are the objects of state repression, you have state-aligned actors, you have vigilantes, police who go out and brutalize nonviolent protesters, those kinds of images in the media are very powerful for creating sympathy for the protest movement. And that, in turn, in the 1960s, contributed to things like passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Conversely, when protesters engage in violence, uh, what you see in the media are narratives about crime and riots and the public shifts to being concerned about crime and riots. And in 1968, we had Richard Nixon, who ran on a law and order campaign, won in a very close election. And I show in my results, in, in, my, in my analysis, that it, it's plausible that if there hadn't been these violent protests, uh, Nixon probably would have lost to Hubert Humphrey, who not coincidentally was the lead author of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. Now to your question, right? Uh, how different is this moment from the 1960s? And I think one really important difference when you, when you ask about kind of the scale is that in the 1960s, there were 750, more than 750 violent protest events that people have documented. And so while this last week in the United States has been uh, dramatic in terms of the number of protests and in particular, the kind of synchronicity of them to have so many in one weekend, you know, in a few days period is quite dramatic, but it's nowhere near the hundreds and hundreds that we saw in the 1960s. So that's one important difference. And I think one other important difference is that in the 60s, the events were uh, in many cases, vastly larger in kind of scope. So in Los Angeles, for example, there's an uprising in 1965 in Watts, and there are approximately 3,000 incidents of arson. Minneapolis, while having a few buildings go up on flames, is very dramatic and eye-catching. It's nowhere near the 3,000 in Los Angeles. And so I think, I think there's some important differences that suggest that what we're seeing right now is very large, but certainly there have been anti-war protests, there have been, uh, you know, there were protests against Trump that were very large in lots of cities. So it's not uh, so out of proportion to what we've seen in recent history either. Mm. And I mean, going back to what you were saying earlier about the kinds of protests that mobilize political action in favor of what they want and the others that backfire and the distinction between violent and nonviolent, and also the importance of the media in defining, you know, which is which, it yeah. seems to me that the current unrest is very finely poised between the two in terms of how it's being perceived by the public. There's enormous sympathy for what happened and outrage at what happened to George Floyd. Uh, the protesters are being described essentially as protesters rather than as rioters in most of the media. And yet, obviously, on the Republican side, 
and particularly from the president, there's increasing focus on violence, disorder, and so on. How do you see those two competing narratives playing out right now? It's a great question. And at the heart of it, you know, what's the context? And I think it's very, as, as you rightly noted, we're seeing a dramatic level of kind of sympathy and even empathy for the outrage at how George Floyd was killed by an officer and that the imagery that uh, people can experience in some ways, not not exactly firsthand, but there's a kind of visceral a capacity to watch. Here's this man crying for his mother as his neck is getting crushed. To be able to see that footage is very moving and has meant that the media has been, in many cases, very attuned to an underlying a claim of injustice here. And that has to be at the core of a lot of how the coverage occurs. And at the same time, there's a visual logic to a lot of media. And by that, I mean, what is visually compelling will often trump almost any other kind of narrative. And so if you've got a building on fire, that's the kind of thing that a cable news show is going to sit on in the lingo of the profession. It makes for great TV. And so there's a kind of almost gravitational pull for a lot of the media towards some of the more extreme tactics, even if the vast majority of protests and the vast majority of protesters are engaging in peaceful protest. And what we see in the 1960s that I think is echoing today is that there are in some ways two core narratives when we're talking about protests. One is a crime narrative and one is a rights and justice narrative. And those themselves are almost like folk tales or mythology in our culture. Is this the Boston Tea Party? Is this, uh, you know, a fight for our rights, a fight for liberty? Do we evoke that kind of story and that kind of mythology? Or is it an act of rioting and, and crime and, uh, you know, and in particular in the context of African-Americans, does it draw on, um, you know, hundreds of years of representing black life as pathological? And there's so much of that kind of racist mythology that exists in our culture that images of buildings on fire, people stealing from a target or whatever it is, are very compelling for media and then do a lot of work to invoke that long history of representing black life in criminal terms. And of course, um, I mean, one parallel that strikes me with the 1960s is that Nixon used this phrase, the silent majority, which Trump is now echoing. And their idea and perhaps their political strategy is that even if the media is dominated by the rights narrative and the relatively liberal narrative, that behind that there are a lot of the silent majority, which may be more attracted to the crime narrative and the more uh, sort of racist narrative about black pathology and and so on. Do you see a, a parallel there um, in the in the way that Trump may pursue the upcoming election? Absolutely. You know, with Trump, it's not just the recent rhetoric that is drawing on those kind of narratives, but his birtherism campaign against Obama was a deeply racist effort to delegitimize the first black president. You know, how could it be that we have somebody who is a African-American who's president, except for the fact that it couldn't be legal, right? And so there's a kind of rhetorical maneuver that Trump engages in and has done even before his presidency, which is to make claims about the primacy, the kind of exalted status of one class of Americans, you know, in particular white Christian Americans, and to emphasize the criminal, the illegal, illegitimate presence of 
non-Christian and non-white Americans, right? So Mexican-Americans, a blanket ban on Muslim immigration was, was one of his core commitments, right? So this kind of divisive, often racist rhetoric is really central to his style and his worldview and is very appealing to a large chunk of my fellow citizens. And it's just inevitable that this would get mobilized as a profound threat by non-white, non-Christian outgroups to the state of order in America. Do you think it might work? Because, I mean, again, your research from 1968 suggests in 68 it did work, although Nixon's rhetoric actually was much milder than, than, than Trump's. But nonetheless, in the very striking finding in your work that uh, counties that were next door to places where there had been violent unrest were much more likely to vote for Nixon. Do you think Trump's right. strategy might work? So one really important thing to appreciate is that there are moderate white voters who are both tolerant of or even supportive of racial equality and also very concerned about order. And those voters are the ones in 1968 who moved from the Democratic coalition that is uh, in 1964 passes the Civil Rights Act. Um, to Nixon's Law and Order Coalition in 1968. And so in 2020, the big question is, you know, how many potential voters are there who might have been, you know, Biden supporters and then in the wake of something like violent protests say, no, 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 I, I want uh, a more orderly America and I'm going to support Trump. And, and I think it's still too early to say, and that, that's in part because they used to say in the 60s, if this is not a long, hot summer, this might be ancient news by November because, you know, there will be more pandemic news. There will be more economic dislocation news. So it's possible that this fades and it doesn't have a big effect. Those white moderates don't swing. And at the same time, we're seeing stories now about neighborhood patrols being set up in relatively liberal neighborhoods in Minneapolis where people are coming together, in some cases setting up checkpoints with guns. Um, that is to say, these are residents of a community trying to patrol who comes into their community. Um, and to be clear, this is mostly white Americans sort of trying to protect their neighborhood, right? And that is a kind of leading indicator of a concern about safety, a concern about order that to my mind suggests there is a, a non-trivial constituency that may find the appeals to order compelling. Could, could one also argue, I mean, of course, we're all guessing, but I mean, as I said earlier, it seems to me that Trump in some ways is a Nixonian figure, but he's a much wilder figure. And if you're looking for order, it's not necessarily obvious to me that you would vote for Trump, who's very incendiary in some ways is, for, is you know, pouring petrol onto this. I mean, in a way, he's a candidate of confrontation as much as of order, isn't he? Yeah, he's a, he's a candidate of chaos. I mean, he, you know, was described by Republican opponents in the 2016 election as a chaos agent. He even says in his own description of his management style, right, I like lots of conflict. So people who are paying attention to something like the American pandemic response, which has been disastrously bad, and you might say this is not somebody who brings order. But if your sense of order is organized in part around race, then Trump's promise of, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to keep the thugs in check will be the kind of thing that has appeal. And, and we've seen an interesting set of trends over the last decade, where on the one hand, I think a lot of people were shocked that Trump won and that there remains, uh, you know, majority white support for Trump. It's not just that this is some niche uh, group. Yeah, that's it's very um, important to remember, isn't it? Yeah. But there's also been over the last decade, 
uh, a significant growth in concern about racial equality among whites, um, and in particular among white liberals. And so I, I think it's still very much an open question whether the kind of uh, growing concern about things like police violence against African-Americans helps voters to understand that they play a role in how we make sense of a moment like the killing of George Floyd and uh, the protests in response and the much longer history of indiscriminate use of force against African-Americans in this country. But I think the fact that there continues to be so much support for Trump, even despite things like high rates of unemployment, a disastrous pandemic response, uh, more than 100,000 Americans dead right now, that, that he retains majority support suggests to me that uh, that kind of silent majority rhetoric is going to continue to have appeal and have resonance in the American voting public. And what kind of uh, tactical considerations does that then bring for the other side, for, for the Democrats? Um, there's a lot of talk now that Joe Biden will feel uh, very much almost compelled to select an African-American as his running mate uh, as this, uh, you know, in, in these current times. After all, the African-American community were incredibly important to him actually getting the nomination. Um, do, do you think that is the way that he'll, he will trend? Uh, and, and do you think that, that uh, whatever the moral considerations, that politically that would be the right call for the Democrats? It's a great question. And the history of this is that Going back to really the late 50s and early 60s, Republicans have owned the issue of law and order, of, of crime control, of criminal justice. And Democrats often struggle to mobilize a, a competing story of how they're going to address you know, concerns about perceived crime, even though in the United States, to be clear, crime is at record lows. I mean, it's, it's as safe as America has been in decades. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, mean, I grew up in New York in the 70s and 80s. The homicide rate was five times as high in New York when I was growing up, right? So, I mean, just dramatic reductions in crime. So that works a little bit to Biden's favor, that it might be that people aren't that worried about crime. But it's really, it's not the reality of crime, it's the perception of crime. And if Trump can get people to really be worried, then, you know, what does Biden do? And I think there are two strategies that we've seen in the past. One is Bill Clinton's strategy, which is to try in some ways out-Republican the Republicans and to be a tougher on crime uh, candidate. And that's not, I think, a strategy that's available to Joe Biden. Both the African-American community and white liberals are not going to tolerate that kind of tough on crime posturing. You know, the interesting bit of history with Biden is that he historically has been very much in the main of the Democratic Party, but a kind of tough on crime law and order guy passing lots of the landmark crime bills that are now considered really devastating to the black community. They've contributed to mass incarceration. And so so that so he's in a, he's in a bind. Um, and I think uh, to the last part of your question, uh, it is possible that someone like Kamala Harris would be a particularly powerful addition to his candidacy. And I mean that in, in a couple of ways. One is, uh, just this as you know, the senator right, from California who ran against him, who's um, African-American. Right. So there's both a kind of symbolic power um, in that she as a black woman would be a symbolic step forward uh, for people who care about racial equality. Um, the other interesting thing is that she was a prosecutor and has spent a lot of time trying to thread that needle of what is the democratic story on crime. And again, she's though similarly uh, in a tough spot where the policies she supported, prosecuting people for marijuana possession, are a liability now. 
And it's not entirely clear that her prosecutorial record is the one that's going to appeal to folks who care about racial equality. It might be a very credible signal, though, to the people who care about are you soft on crime because she uh, can actually credibly claim to have been tough on crime, um, even though that's sort of fallen out of favor in the democratic fold. And final question, I'm stepping away from the election and the sort of tactical considerations. In some ways, it's very striking, isn't it, that we can talk about these parallels with 1968 over 50 years ago, which still seems so relevant and so alive. And it's slightly depressing, isn't it? Because one had hoped that over the course of 50 years, you would have had a sort of transformation in American race relations after the Civil Rights Act, after the first African-American president serving for eight years in office. I mean, for those, you know, it's a quite a, it's a bleak moment for those who think, well, actually, you know, this is just a problem that never goes away, the, the, the history of racial injustice in America. How would you, you, you frame that, particularly with reference to the 1960s? I view the kind of last 50 years as a tale of two black cities in a way. In the wake of the 64 Civil Rights Act, the 65 Voting Rights Act, other kinds of reforms that were done uh, you know, around the country, we've seen on the encouraging side, enormous growth of the black middle class. Um, there's been a dramatic expansion on a bunch of measures, you know, income, college completion, pick your outcome. The quality of life for the black middle class has improved substantially, and that's a really important victory for America that reflects a real change from the second class Jim Crow status of the 60s. Um, and I think it's really important to say that the protest movements, the, the, the genius of the um, civil disobedience that was engaged in by the civil rights movement, you know, they broke the back of Jim Crow, a regime that had been in place for decades and seemed unshakable. That's a remarkable accomplishment. But that breaking of the back of Jim Crow and the allowing of a kind of flourishing of the black middle class also happened uh, in a way that meant that the bottom, let's call it 40 or 50 percent of African-Americans have actually not thrived. And that's partly a result of some of the kinds of policies we've just been talking about, the rise of tough on crime, law and order policies that just criminalized black life and meant that for a lot of African-Americans, the opportunity that might have been possible and was embraced or, you know, was, was sort of taken up by folks who had uh, the capacity to and became that black middle class. For a lot of people, there was this just this kind of net of uh, uh, of mass incarceration that kind of locked people in and made it very hard to find any kind of upward mobility, right? So that criminalizing of black life in the 70s and 80s and 90s has made it exceedingly hard for people to kind of escape poverty in the United States, uh, combined with things like deindustrialization. And, and so, so these two things are happening simultaneously, a lot of progress for the black middle class, and, and in some cases, regress, a, a, a decrease in, in, in quality of life for the lower half of African Americans. And, and what we see in these protests, and I think what's so important about what's going on, is that they're putting some of the core criminal justice issues that have been uh, a burden, not just a burden, have been a kind of terror for black communities over the last 50 years, front and center. And that's, I think, what's encouraging is that you're seeing a broader coalition of people say the old regime of uh, tough on crime policies, this old regime of tolerating police brutality is no longer acceptable. 
And so making those changes in the future is still going to be an enormous challenge, but it feels like the political center has moved and the kind of taste for repression is no longer going to be the, the, the kind of ascendant wind in our, in our politics in the future. And so I think that, that does bode some hope for improving the quality of life for that bottom half of African Americans, though there's still clearly a lot more to do. Okay, well, thank you for that very interesting and indeed slightly hopeful note on which, on which to end. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, Professor Omar Wasso. Thank you so much for having me. That was Omar Wasso ending this edition of the Rachman Review. And if you could spare a few moments, we'd love to hear from you about what you think about the show and how it can improve. We're running a survey, which you can find at ft.com slash Rachman Survey. You might also like to subscribe to the FT's Coronavirus Business Update, a level-headed expert email briefing on how the pandemic's affecting global markets, business, and the workplace. Visit ft.com slash Rachman Review COVID to sign up for free access for 30 days. There's a link in our show notes. And please join us again next week. You can find us in all the usual podcast apps.